Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Anne Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So Anne, I am so excited about our guest today. Dr. Nicole Swiner is somebody I heard speak about a month ago at a Raleigh Professional Women's Forum meeting, and she was speaking on the topic of the superwoman complex and self-care. So I will say we always have really great speakers at RPWF, but I am not sure we have ever had a speaker where every single person in the room heard something not just relevant to their day-to-day life, but also super practical. And when I say the room was captivated, I'm not kidding. Everybody was leaning forward, shaking their head, nodding their head, tons of questions, because seriously, what woman doesn't struggle with the question of how to fit enough self-care into their life. So I went up to Nicole afterwards and said, I have a podcast and I know our listeners will just think like you're incredible. And can we talk about being on the podcast? And she is here today. I'm really excited about that. So just a couple words to describe Nicole. She is a speaker, an author, a family physician, a publisher, an entrepreneur, a mentor, mom to a 10 and 12-year-old, wife, and she is an expert of the superwoman complex. She's written Wait, two- is that it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, so, well, okay, no, I forced myself to leave out some other things. Okay, okay, okay. Because I didn't want to intimidate any of our listeners, but she's also written two best-selling books on the topic. And last thing I'll say is she was one of 10 finalists for Best Doctor in North Carolina in 2017. So, She sounds kind of like a superwoman, but one of the things I so appreciated in her talk at RPWF was how upfront she was with the fact she still struggles with superwoman complex, and she wanted to be super clear that she is definitely not perfect. Last thing I'm going to say is, because listeners, you can't see her, but she has a smile that lights up the room, and she has a laugh that just makes you want to start laughing, too. So (laughs) I'm just so excited that you are here with us today, Nicole, and I'm going to turn it over to you to tell us a bit about your journey. Oh, thank you. That was a wonderful intro. That makes me me smile even more. (laughs) Good. Thank you so much, uh, ladies, for having me. I really appreciate it. Love doing stuff like this, particularly with talking with other women that likely will relate to a lot of what I talk about so we can have discussions like this. So I love this. But as you mentioned, at my core career-wise, I am a family physician and a good old-fashioned family doc, which has changed and transitioned over the last year or so, but my route is to take care of the family from start to finish. I love taking care of multiple generations, becoming part of their family, which comes with all the goods and all the bads, not bads, but burdens and challenges. But I love taking care of little bitty newborns fresh out of the womb and their parents and then their siblings and then their grandparents and everybody in between. 
So that's been my love. And career-wise, it's always going to be my base, you know, no matter what I'm doing. But on top of that, as you mentioned, you know, I have two kids and a husband at home that I take care of. I have a father and siblings and folks, all these other folks that I have to be responsible for. And it's a lot, you know, especially as the elder child. I come from a family of two siblings and my brother and I are six years apart. And so I'm the oldest daughter. And so that always comes with its own burden of having to feeling like the matriarch when you're not really. And figuring out what works for me has been the goal over the past, I would say, seven or eight years, really trying to figure out what works best for me. Because once I first entered the world of medicine, taking care of patients, I, by accident, seemingly became a co-owner of the practice. And then business of medicine is a whole other thing. I had to figure out how to take better care of myself so that I could take care of all these other people and things. So that's been my journey. And I've been specifically focused on that over the last about year and a half with the pandemic coming and bringing on more and more layers of challenges in in many different ways and figuring out, okay, well, where am I? Am I happy in my career? Are things working well for me at home? How do I figure out what is quote unquote balance for me so that I can be of better use to society and my family. So that's really what I've been focused on and doing all these things that you mentioned that I do. <laughs> so I'm curious, did you know you always wanted to be a doctor? I'd love to hear a little bit about the part of your journey that brought you to becoming a family physician and then everything that has come since then. Right. So probably freshman year, sophomore year in high school. We lived in multiple different places in the South. So I'm originally from South Carolina, but with my father's job, he worked for Federal Express as an executive. So every time he had a promotion or moved to a different department, we moved to a different Southern state. So I think high school was probably in where, what, what place was I? Was that Louisiana. I think I was in New Orleans at the time. So anyway, I can I can think back to my time in New Orleans, freshman, sophomore year, making good grades, you know, doing well in math and science. And so I, you know, had a, a lot of encouragement in the math and science areas because I was making good grades and they were like, oh, if you like this and you're curious about medicine, why don't you think about medicine? And so that's where I kind of first got that seed planted. And then during my off hours, I was a babysitter in the neighborhood. So I took care of a lot of the neighborhood kids and knew that I loved babysitting. And and that's kind of how I got interested in pediatrics. So I initially thought I was going to be a pediatrician and just strictly take care of babies and kids because I was, you know, I was good at it. I was good in math and science. So that's supposed to be what you do, right? And my teachers and parents and all that, they were encouraging that. And then on top of that, we moved back to South Carolina from the last couple of years of high school. And our family dentist was a black male dentist whose wife was a black female family physician. So during that time, long story short, (laughs) while seeing him in his office and he knew that I was interested in medicine in some way, he said, Hey, have you ever thought about dentistry? You want to come and like intern and shadow, hang out with us. So for the summers, I got a chance to hang out in the dentist office and look at patient care and how his life worked and how his wife handled her practice. And it was cool. And I was, I was definitely blessed and fortunate to have mentors early on in that space to see how their lives were run. I said, I think I could do some form of patient care, but I didn't think about family medicine, which is putting, if you're not familiar, family medicine, docs can do pediatrics, they can do OBGYN, they can do surgery, you know, they can do all sorts of things together and take care of the whole family. But I didn't realize that I wanted to be a family doctor until probably 
once I got into medical school, I kept the idea of wanting to do pediatrics and then thought a little bit about OBGYN once I did a little bit of time on labor and delivery and saw what that that beauty was like, you know, taking care of pregnant women and watching them have their family moments with bringing babies into the world. I thought about that. But then I got sad about having to let the baby go. Once I <laughs> delivered the baby, I was like, no, I want to stay with the baby. And that's family babies. Right? <laughs> and that's family medicine. So mm. there are family docs that deliver babies, do prenatal care, deliver babies, and then take care of them for the duration of their life. So I said, that's what I want to do. And that's how I settled on family medicine as my career, my ministry, you know, the root of who I am. Nicole, I want to back up just a little bit because I mean, you had to pause when you thought about where was I when I was a freshman? And I'm just, I'm just curious what impact you think all that moving around as a youngster had on you. Yeah. You know, I remember being sad. Every move came with a little bit of sadness. It came with adjustment. It came with being uprooted and all that. But I actually, I think I thanked my father recently for giving me that experience because it's made me kind of a chameleon. I can shift and change and adjust to a lot of different environments now because I was taught to, okay, pick up and move and start over multiple times. And I was a child. I was an adolescent. I was a teenager. And so in many ways, I think it helped me as an adult because now I feel like I can walk into any room essentially and pivot, figure out what what's being talked about. I've had a, you know, a couple of different life experiences. I can talk about different things. So I think it it helped me a lot, particularly in adulthood. It is sort of the core of what we talk about a lot because part of the title of our podcast is The Perfectly Imperfect Journey. And so sometimes it's those things that I'm sure, especially as a teenager and who knows, maybe there was a cute boy involved or your right. new bestie it's friend always, or whatever. Always. Right? Oh, I hated it. I hated right. it when it was happening. <laughs> right. And it feels like the worst thing in the world. So it's such a great, which doesn't take away from 14-year-old experience experience of it feeling like the worst thing in the world. And yet it's such a great example of sometimes the things that we think are so difficult, so hard actually end up being the things that serve us in some ways down the road. And we can't even see what that might even be when it's happening to us. Right. And so it's such a beautiful reframe. Thank you for sharing that. And you don't want to hear it when your parents are trying to nope. explain that to you. You're like, I hate <laughs> right. you. It's like, you'll get it. You'll get it eventually. Right. And they're saying, no, no, this is good for you, right? This is going to build some good, strong, resilient muscles for you. Yes. Yeah, so you landed ultimately in North Carolina in the Triangle. And for all our North Carolina listeners, I'm just going to say, Nicole spent undergrad at Duke and a residency at UNC Carolina. So wait, is it, is that allowed? Is that, isn't that, isn't that sort of like mortal enemies there? <laughs> you got to pick one. That's right. No, I'm, I'm a blue devil through and through. I root for my blue devils because of undergrad. <laughs> right. But you got to find something to do at NC state. <laughs> you're, you're missing the other big one. I don't know. Right. A&T. There's a bunch of schools there in the triangle. That's right. That's right. I Central. I spent much time at North Carolina Central hanging out. Well, in all your spare time, right? You can you you can traverse some of these other schools. Right. But you landed in the Triangle and in Durham, and you talked at RPWF and in your book about having your own kind of crucible moment that got you very mm, intimately familiar with Superwoman Complex, which is something you have since become an expert in. And 
I would love to hear more about what that experience was because it really sounds like it changed the trajectory of your life. It did. It was literally my rock bottom moment. I hit rock bottom because I passed out on the floor. Um, so that's, that's, that was my moment. So what happened was medical school, residency, fresh out of residency, got my first real job. And that's where I'd been essentially for the duration of my clinical career up until about a year and a half ago, but started working in medical school, essentially. And it's probably much different now because, you know, I'm, I'm old. So, you know, nowadays they're teaching all kinds of things in medical school, but essentially in medical school, you were taught to, you know, treat the patient, be a good steward of healthcare, know your place and keep your head down and take care of the patients. But about a year or so or two into practice, we worked for a practice that was loosely affiliated with UNC. So we were a hospital owned slash kind of a private practice, but UNC decided they wanted to pull out. So they were going to sell our practice and then move all the doctors to these different practices that were being built in surrounding areas. But the folks that I was working with at the time said, no, we've had this practice that the folks that hired me, they had owned the practice for at least 10 or so years prior to that. And they said, we want to stay together. We love our patient panel. We want to stay here with our population. So we became business owners. None of us had business experience, <laughs> which is crazy <laughs> to think about. None of us had MBAs. None of us had previously run our own independent and private practices, but we said we want to do this together. So became a business owner. That was never a plan. And that, of course, comes with its own challenges and stresses. So again, medical school, residency, straight out of residency, first job, working in patient care, and then business owner. Then found the man of my dreams. Married him and then had two children. (laughs) (laughs) So all these things happening, boom, 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 which is great. And then you look up Superwoman in the in the dictionary, and there's your picture. <laughs> so interestingly, I didn't know this whole thing, this phenomenon even existed until coming back from maternity leave, first kid, coming back, of course, not sleeping up all night, breastfeeding, not exercising because who has time for that, and then coming back to work. So seeing patients, owning a practice, et cetera. After probably two or three weeks of being back and getting back into the swing of things, talking to a patient, escorting the patient out to the front desk, walking back into the hall, I passed out and hit the floor. And so thankfully I'm in the doctor's office. So everyone comes running. So they're ready with the EKG and the oxygen and everything. And so after the assessment, of course, my partner pulls me aside and says, Hey, uh, older male Indian, wonderful gentleman, Dr. Chilla Curry, who will be forever a friend of mine. But he pulled me to the side. He said, Hey, how's your stress level? And I was like, of course I'm stressed. It's crazy. What do you mean? Of course. He was like, yeah, I think you're probably doing too much. Yeah. This is all the doctor heal thyself thing, right? Heal thyself. (laughs) He said, yeah, I think you're probably overdoing it. And so that was the first real conversation I had about what are you doing for you? Right. And clearly my husband has always been wonderfully supportive. He's the best, but it really took that moment for all of us to sit down and assess what I was doing, what my schedule looked like how much stress I had going on in my life because it was just not sustainable. It was not sustainable. And my father, so interestingly, the men in my life were the ones that pointed out that I was doing too much, that had too much stress, you know, me being the one that always took care of everything. They said, you're doing too much. You're doing a lot. And I think my father was probably triggered most by my mother passed away, probably my second year of residency. 
And I think a lot of what ultimately ended up being her downfall, unfortunately, was mental health issues that probably did not go diagnosed or treated soon enough. And she was self-medicating. And I've talked about this a lot and talked to this a lot with my father and my family about this stuff, but she was self-medicating with alcohol. And that caused medical issues that I think ultimately led to her demise. So I think my father was probably triggered a lot and said, you know what? This is too stressful. I know you're doing wonderful things, but I want you to read this article that I just read about women in the workplace and about this thing called the superwoman syndrome. You know, you should check that out. Read it. And I said, "Ah, that's me. And a light bulb went off. Let's unpack a little bit of this because I find this really interesting there's a lot of things I'm making up in my head about the fact that it was men in your life that were really pointing out you were doing too much, but I want to know, what do you make of that? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think thankfully, fortunately, I had men that understood what I, as a woman, particularly a woman of color, was trying to achieve and do these wonderful things to create opportunities and legacy and all of that. And they knew that that was of importance to me, but knew that at some point it becomes too much of a burden. So I don't know. I just, I guess the the type of men around me understood that it was not sustainable. And I guess, you know, liked me enough that they wanted to keep me around. So they wanted <laughs> I mean, I love that because I, I think we hear both Sherry and I come from kind of more corporate background and me a little bit more recently, but I constantly battled, I was head of HR in a couple different companies, constantly battled people really setting expectations of everybody, not just women, but of everybody as if they had no life, right? As if like your world, you should be able to give a hundred percent of yourself to work and children or other interests or family or God or whatever be damned, right? Because you have a job to do. And so, I mean, I really love the fact that you were surrounded by, I'm just going to say that you had these people in your life that, as you said, cared enough to really point out something that you weren't even seeing for yourself at the time. Exactly. Yeah, definitely a blessing. Definitely a blessing. Well, and I want to tag on to that with there's something that is uh, poignant is not the right word, but I can't grab the right word about your father looking at his daughter and saying, I'm not going to go through this again. There's no way I'm going through this again. And being really willing to confront you on it and say, you're not going in a good direction here. And I don't even know if he realized that. Because it's very easy from the outside looking in to say, oh my God, she has it all together. Look at her. She is so committed to her patients and she's now owns this practice and she's just had a baby and God, look how kick-ass she is. But for the people around you to see past that is just really, really touching. And having that support system, once you realize that you are a superwoman, you have to have that support system both for accountability and just for help. Because if you're going to say no and cross stuff off your list, you have to hand it over to somebody else, right? That's going to be able to help you. So yeah, it's, I've definitely been fortunate. So tell me, how do you define this idea of being a superwoman? You know, you'll find probably a lot of definitions depending on what you read. So I first got the idea and read this book called The Superwoman Syndrome from 1984. Marjorie Steigler, forgive me if I'm incorrect. First name's definitely Marjorie. But 1984, and I remember that year because it's the year my brother was born. So The Superwoman Syndrome is one book that I read, and then it 
morphed into what's called now the superwoman complex. And then there's a black superwoman schema. Like it has a lot of different forms and variations, but the gist of all of those things are the idea that you have to be the perfect person, woman to all the people in your life, at work, at home, in society. And then ultimately you forget about yourself in the end. And in the end, once you forget about yourself, that means then you have these complications. Then you have the mental health disorders, you have the physical manifestations of stress, you have the substance abuse or use or overuse because you're trying to self-medicate. And so that that is what comes out of being a superwoman. And so you find yourself on the floor, you know, you get the help you need through the kindness of your, your practice, part. you you get up uh, your <laughs> practice partner and your father and your husband kind of give you some feedback and, and ask you to sort of look at yourself. What happens next? What do you do to change sort of the position you found yourself in? Yeah. So then you have to have a, a serious talk with yourself and say, all of the things and the roles and the responsibilities that I have, are they all necessary? Like, do I have to do all these things? Or if I have to do all these things, do I have to do them all at the same time? So that's the first conversation you have to have is with yourself and ask yourself, why? Like, why am I signing up for all these committees? Why am I signing up to do all these whatevers when I know I really don't have the time to, to successfully do all of them and get eight hours of sleep and exercise three times a week? So those are probably the biggest two conversations you have to have with yourself. And then you have to have conversations with the loved ones and say, Hey, you know, with my husband, I had to say, okay, so who's going to be responsible every night for putting the kids in the bath and putting them in bed? And who's going to be responsible for cooking every night? And who's going to be responsible for cleaning and all of that. And hopefully you have a supportive partner who says, you know what, I'll take Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, or if you have the means, we'll get a housekeeper to help or we'll get a nanny to help. Or if your kids are involved in dance, softball and volleyball, do they have to do them all, all the time, right? Like who's going to take them? So you have to have the conversation with your support team and be able to delegate or cross things off the list. as to what's truly necessary. Like, do we enjoy doing these things? Like, why are we doing them? On a previous podcast, I remember sharing, but I'll just never forget. I worked for IBM at the beginning of my career and I was at a women's forum conference one time and there was a woman from, I think she was from South Africa and she had just like this sort of gleam in her eye a little bit. And she said, there was a time when I thought I had to be the best executive and the best cook and the best mom and the best housekeeper and the best whatever. She's like, I've given up the housekeeping and the cooking. <laughs> it's just like so perfect. <laughs> it speaks exactly to what you're saying because it's a lot about prioritization. There are things that are important to you that you don't want to have to give up. And yet even in that, sometimes there are things that might have to take a backseat for right now. So I may not be able to do that right this second because working out three times a week, getting enough sleep, spending time with family, et cetera, is actually more important to me right now than that particular thing. Correct. Hopefully you have the means to do that. Or if you don't necessarily think you have the means being able to take an assessment of the budget, what are we spending our money on? And do we need to cancel cable so that we can get a housekeeper once a month? You know what I'm saying? Like, do we, right. So you have, you have to make those adjustments. You have to make the adjustments. Well, I would imagine another piece of it is also the not doing things perfectly. There's also the piece of these are the things I'm going to give up, but here's a couple other things that 
I'm not going to give up, so I'm not going to stop dressing my kids in the morning, but do I really have to obsess of having their outfits all match? Or do I have to do this thing over here quite so perfectly? I mean, you're probably not going to make the trade-off in your medical practice, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, do I have to be that concerned with my patients? But <laughs> Maybe, you know, I will sacrifice some financial income and not see as many patients. Or, you know, there's always some kind of trade-off that can be made, right? That's right. And, and part of what I'm doing Doing now in my career is trying to teach, particularly my medical colleagues, what they can do to make things less stressful. Like if you don't want to necessarily see patients nine to five every day in a, in a clinical setting, there are other things you can do as a physician that can make you money. You might make less money, but you'll have more control over your schedule. And that's the root of it is do you have control enough over your time where you can make adjustments as needed? So, you know, one of the things I really appreciate in your fabulous book, How to Avoid the Superwoman Complex, is you're not only giving advice, but you're sharing a lot of your own experiences in it. And so I want to come back then to, you've picked yourself up off the floor, you kind of have these conversations with important people in your life, you do your own assessment, and then what happens next for you to to make some of the changes that you needed to make in order to be where you are now? Fast forward from the time I wrote the book to about let's say about a year before the pandemic hit, I definitely started to adjust my schedule. So as you mentioned, you know, seeing less patients and all of that. So I started to shift and create more administrative time, scheduling time where I was not seeing patients and doing stuff specifically with the business of, of the practice, or I was at home <laughs> taking a nap or being able to go to the, whatever, the spa or see my therapist, right? So I tried to adjust my schedule at work enough to make more time for what I needed. And then over time, I started figuring out, well, you know, I love patient care. I love taking care of people, but I don't really love the business of medicine. So does continuing to be a co-owner, how important is that for me and to me? And ultimately what I decided to do in the pandemic, I think was the straw that broke the camel's back, was figuring out, yeah, I don't want to run a practice anymore. (laughs) Or I've done that for 13 years and I need a break. I need a break. So then that transitioned into, well, what other things could I do with my medical degree? Be at home more, still make money and pay the bills, but have more control of my schedule. And so over the last year and a half, I've been figuring that out with publishing and research and telemedicine. And I'm going to get into what's called utilization management soon. And that's more the corporate side and the insurance side of medicine. But now I'm realizing, oh, look at all these things I can do as a doctor, still be involved in patient care, but have more control over my schedule so that it's less stressful. I think so often all of us find ourselves in positions where we think, I have no choice. We've sort of backed ourselves into this corner. And sometimes, let's be honest, there are sometimes and in some situations, like I got to put food on the table and keep shoes on my kids' feet. However, I do think more times than not, we actually do have options. And it sounds like you've carved out some different ways of both living and then frankly, creating a living that provides you some more opportunities to have control over your time in your life. Absolutely. And I, I really hope because I'm in the medical field and there unfortunately have been a lot of issues with the mental health of doctors recently and the suicide rate is rising. The suicide rate of physicians is actually higher than that of war veterans now because a lot of us feel constricted. We feel the guilt of this is the degree I've worked my whole life for. How can I leave it? And feeling locked in. I'm hopeful that 
by me talking about all the other things that we can do or not working in medicine at all. Go work for Target. <laughs> I would rather save your life than you sticking with medicine and hating it or sticking with any career choice that you hate than just going and find other things that may not have anything to do with what you studied in school and go and you know, make a living for yourself, but being happy. So I'm hopeful that this helps people to figure out, okay, well, I may not love what I spent all my school loan money on. You know, I may not love doing that for the rest of my life. What else could I do? And feeling more free. You know, it's interesting you bring up mental health because in your book, you relayed a statistic. It was something like one in 10 Americans identify as having a mental health issue. And my friends, you know, Google, I just Googled before we hopped on and, and their stat is now one in five. I'm curious, do we have more awareness now? Is there more mental health issues or is it something, what do you think is going on with that? I think it's both or multifactorial. I think number one, thankfully the stigma, I think of mental health and getting help for your mental health is decreasing. So that's great. So I think we're definitely more aware, whether it's because of social media, TV, whatever, we're talking about it more. So I think people are more aware of it and being able to get diagnosed with mental health issues. And then number two, I think Unfortunately, things have probably gotten worse. I mean, the the pandemic, which is continuing, brought many, many, many things to light. We're suffering from multiple pandemics, and mental health pandemic is one of them. I think it's multifactorial, but I'm glad that we're talking about it more because people are actually now, I think, more willing to get the help that they need. You know, I think this is one of the things that is just so incredibly important that you're doing is shining a light I mean, you're doing it in the medical field, which is not a field either Ann or I are in, but I saw the impact in the room at RPWF on just talking to a room full of women about how easy it is to succumb to trying to be everything to everyone and how easy it is to not even realize that you're putting pressure on yourself that's not necessary. So just these conversations you're having about self-care and the difference between doing a lot of things, which you are doing a lot of things, right? But the difference between actually operating in a place of superwoman complex or from a place of superwoman syndrome is very different than being somebody who is able to do a lot of things and do it in a healthy way. I'm definitely a juggler. I'm pretty good at juggling multiple things in the air, but it has to be on my own time. It has to be on my own time. I think what you just said now and what you've been saying that's so important is this idea of having agency and setting up your life, if at all possible, so that you get to make a lot more of the choices about your life. And again, that comes with trade-offs, but I, I do think it's this idea of agency of I can do all these things as long as... I can decide when to do them or how to do them or where to do them. And that's such an important message as well. Yep. You're exactly right. That's the key. Cause I still have people today that are you know, asking me, okay, or they're congratulating me for quote, retiring from clinical practice. And they're like, well, what exactly are you doing now? And then I start listing the things and they're like, that's more work, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but it's on my schedule. It's my time, right? So if I want to do this three times a week, have Fridays off and work half day Monday, that's my choice. I want to go back just a little bit because you had talked about your mom 
and I'm sorry, I, I didn't catch if she took her own life or if she... Mm-mm. Yeah, she succumbed to the medical issues likely related to mental health. Okay. Yeah. And so I'm curious what impact that has had on you and your awareness of your own mental health and how that's related to the way you're living your life today. So I realized that she was struggling with some form of mental health issues, likely depression, while in medical school, interestingly. And I went back home to Charleston to go to the medical, the MUSC, Medical University of South Carolina. And I was living at home at the time to save money, which was great. I was at home with the parents and my brother was in college at the time. So I'm spending a lot of time with, with her. And my father had become a little bit more open about what she had been dealing with for years. Because, of course, they kept that away from the kids. And so... Now, as the budding doctor in the family, of course, I was noticing and recognizing things more because I was learning about them. And I w- we would talk about what was going on. And so learned about her mental health issues in medical school, found out that there was alcoholism involved, tried to be a help, you know, as much as a child can, you know, as an adult child with a parent going through these issues, trying to be as helpful as I could. I even went to some AA meetings with her and, you know, when she wasn't feeling well, went to the doctor with her, but, you know, ultimately an adult has to make a decision for themselves to get better and it just was not getting better. So dealing with her medical school, things were crazy. It was stressful. I started therapy then. (laughs) I knew that I needed to do something preventatively, preemptively, so that I didn't go crazy, which, you know, we we try to use that word in medicine, but I wanted to make sure I didn't go crazy. So I started first with my pastor. I did pastoral counseling. And then later on, I saw a psychologist just for help. And so that's when I started really paying attention to my own mental health because I wanted to make sure I was healthy. And then that just, you know, intermittently did that to this point now, you know, so anytime I feel the need to check in, you know, I definitely will make an appointment with therapists, different therapists that I've had over, over time. And so that's one thing that I definitely do for mental health. And then I, I try to stay as open and honest and, and have open conversations with my husband. You know, he's my number one. So, you know, we have open conversations about how things are going and emotionally, how both of us are doing during the pandemic spending more time at home, having more family time. We definitely had open discussions about how we're all feeling and what that means. And I would say that that continuing that trend has been a big deal for us in terms of preserving our mental health. I mean, I I love what you're saying that so much of this has to do with being willing and frankly able to talk about what's happening. And then to use your language, relying on utilizing your support system to talk about what is happening for you and engage them in ways to support you. And then vice versa as well, right? We're talking about superwoman complex. And I do think in a lot of ways, women have additional burdens or put additional burdens on themselves, whichever way we want to talk about it. I think this could be said about a lot of people and that a lot of people take a lot on and put really heavy burdens on their shoulders. You started talking about a couple of things that 
we can do to start to address superwoman, superperson complex in terms of really sort of taking stock and looking at the things that are important to me, prioritizing what's important, maybe moving some things down the list, just making sure I carve out time, agency in terms of time. One of the things that Sherry actually pulled out from your book that I just absolutely love is really about how health is really about living a fulfilled life and ultimately being happy. And so what else could our listeners do to really walk down that path? Yeah. One of my favorite ones is removing toxicity in multiple ways. And a lot of that has to do with our relationships. It's probably the most difficult part of finding joy is releasing some of those relationships that no longer serve you. So that could be the high school best friend who, you know, you're just not on the same paths anymore and you're not aligned in terms of what makes you happy and et cetera. If that relationship isn't working out, you may have to lovingly let that person go or lovingly love them from a distance. Some of that includes family relationships, which is very hard. If there's been an emotionally abusive type of relationship that you've had with a loved one since childhood, some of them, now that you're an adult, you have to let go. And that's okay. Or you have to set those boundaries and say, okay, this is the way that I I will allow you to speak to me and treat me and the other things I won't go for. And so you have to advocate for yourself in those ways. Some of the things that we feed ourselves in media, on TV, on Netflix, you know, I know, I know a lot of things aren't good for me to watch, even though I want to watch what's happening with the Murdoch. story. I can't watch that before I go to sleep, right? Yeah. I can't, I probably shouldn't watch it at all. Just knowing how triggered I am by certain scary things. So knowing what is good for you, for your, your body, your mind, and your spirit, removing those things that you know, that are toxic makes a big difference. It keeps you happier. This is like I said, in the introduction was what was so powerful in your presentation of just some really practical things that there's something that is accessible to everybody. And so I just, I just think it's such great advice. And on the topic of advice, if you could go back in time, like maybe to the time when little Nicole is starting to think about medical school, or so maybe it's teenage Nicole starting to think about medical school, knowing what you know today, what words of wisdom might you whisper in her ear? That's a good question. So when you originally asked me the question, I was already thinking of an example, actually, from when little Nicole was a little bit older and we, you know, finishing up on the toxicity discussion, get rid of that boyfriend that you were holding on to for six, seven years (laughs) and trying, trying to help him discover his dreams and his career goals and not thinking enough about your own joy. Let him go. Let him go. And, you know, things have to happen the way they happen. So thankfully, once I finally dropped him shortly after probably my second year of residency, literally my husband showed up. So things are supposed to happen the way they are, but I think I wasted time probably giving myself too much to someone who didn't understand my worth, my value, my time, you know, didn't understand how, how important that was and me pouring into him to help him fulfill his dreams. So that would probably be my first piece of advice is let that man go. (laughs) (laughs) Wash that man right out of your hair. Get him out. Get him out. 
what I love about what you're saying is that it's, it's so reinforcing everything else you've said. And that is really about, it, it's sort of the classic, put your own oxygen mask on first, really investing in yourself and taking care of yourself first, as opposed to pouring all that energy and all that time into frankly, somebody that doesn't sound like he was worth your energy or your time. So no, nope, he was in the way he's standing yeah. in the way of my husband. <laughs> well, I, d- I do want to comment on that though, because that's such a good point is so often the things that we have a hard time letting go of are exactly the things that are actually in our way. And so it's just a really good reminder, whether it's a bad relationship or the wrong job, the things that just feel like, oh, I don't know that I can let this go is to also remember that "Mm, there's a really good chance it's going to open up something really amazing for you. That's right. And I'll just real quick, there's this image on social media I've seen before. I think it was probably a Christian friend of mine, but I think it's a picture of like a cartoon of Jesus holding a small teddy bear that he's trying to wring out of someone's hands. But right behind him, he has an even bigger teddy bear. And so it's just like, if you just let go, I'll give you this bigger <laughs> blessing, but you got to let That's go right. of this one first. Yeah. Right. Oh, I love that image. I really love that image. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much for being with us today. It is, has just been such a great conversation. And I, I just know there's going to be so much in it for our listeners. We will have links in the show notes to your website, to your books on Superwoman Complex and all kinds of other good information. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. And I think that's going to wrap up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. And we are also starting to cook up some new offerings, and we will have more information on that soon. But if you want to be the first to know, head over to flowingeastandwest.com to join our mailing list. We promise we will never spam you because we hate when people do it to us, but we do hope to bring you some exciting programming in alignment with the podcast. And until then, please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.